Welcome to Downstage Center, a presentation of XM Satellite Radio in the American Theater Wing. I'm John von Susten, Program Director of XM28 on Broadway. And I'm Howard Sherman, Executive Director of the American Theater Wing. We are joined today by the Pulitzer Prize-nominated playwright A.R. Gurney, who answers to the name of Pete, certainly around the house, but also with his friends, Pete Gurney, today with us. Pete has written many shows, which you may have seen, The Cocktail Hour, The Dining Room, The Perfect Party, Another, Antigone, Love Letters, Achiever, Evening, Sylvia, Ancestral Voices, just to name a few. A year ago at this time, Mrs. Farnsworth was running here in New York, and currently running here in New York, Screenplay, your latest work. Welcome, Pete. Thank you very much. As John's already run through, you are an enormously prolific and enormously popular playwright across America for really the last several decades. So how is it that Screenplay, your most recently produced work, is playing off-off Broadway at the Flea Theater Company, not even on their main stage, mm-hmm. which is so grand as to have, I think, about 90, 90 seats, seats you're but right. you're in their basement second stage with only 40 seats. How does A.R. Gurney end up in a basement in, <laughs> in lower Manhattan? It, does, it seems like a career trajectory that's a little different than the common one. Well, it was – I have to say that wasn't totally my choice and I was surprised that they put me there. But uh, I wrote this play, screenplay, very quickly and I wanted to get it on rather quickly. And the Flea is a very popular space downtown. When they're not doing something, they're renting the space in order to keep alive. So they didn't have any other place to put it. And uh, I wanted to get it done if we could this spring. So within within a month after I handed it in to Jim Simpson, who's the artistic director of the Flea, he said uh, he said and i wrote it as a reading you know to be read not to be rehearsed in scenery and uh, rehearsed for four four weeks and all that so we just put it the only place we could and i'm very i'm very content i think next fall uh we're going to move it upstairs if we're lucky and play for four weeks up there I think for our listeners, we should probably explain what screenplay is. It's a futuristic show, shall we say, set about 10 years into the future, where America has been taken over by, seems like, ultra-conservatives, a religious uh, moral majority. Right, right. Well, I've written three plays in the past three years about what's going on politically in this country. And I wrote them almost specifically for the fleet because I happened to see uh, The Guys, which was a play about 9-11 and the fireman's response to that. And I liked the whole atmosphere and the whole feel of the space. And I liked the younger audiences. So I – first I wrote about the kind of antagonism between the Western world and the Arabic world uh, as – evidenced uh, in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict and, and, and that was my first play. That's Oh, Jerusalem. Oh, Jerusalem, exactly. And we played that. That was a more conventional play. and uh, Yet still presentational in its style. Yeah, it was, very simple. You were very aware – it made people aware that a play was being put on. Right, didn't right. try to have the artifice of, of it just being played in front of you. Exactly. Uh, and very cleverly done. I mean instead of having – taking you to uh, say um, – the American Embassy in Jordan, where some of the scenes, it simply shows you a couple of minarets in a rather modern building, and then you're in Jordan, and on you go. 
So anyway, that was my first. Then I wrote a play about the the election, last year's election, the election of 2004 called Mrs. Farnsworth. And Sigourney Weaver, whose husband, Jim Simpson, runs the play, said she wanted to play the lead. I was absolutely delighted when she did. And, and Lithgow, who had just finished in a play called Retreat from Moscow, was still in town. I said uh, – they said, let's offer it to him because it's a – John Lithgow is a good actor and a very popular one. I said, he'll not – he'll never do it. He's uh, back to Hollywood. But he did it at least for six weeks, I think. So we did that last year. And then this year, I decided to write one more about what would happen – what might happen in this country if the far right uh, won uh, by hook or by crook a series of elections. And I wrote it uh, – I, I, I had happened to be watching the movie Casablanca and I saw wouldn't it be terrific if I could make this a uh, – use the – swipe the plot of Ca Casablanca and use this as a way of saying something about our country. So that's that's what I did, and that is now playing at the fleet. Well, screenplay is located set in Buffalo, New York, where you were born. Yeah. Buffalo, New York, is also one of the gateways to Canada, mm -hmm. and part of the plot line is American citizens are fleeing to Canada and Mexico to try to escape what their government has become. Exactly, that's a good way of describing it. I, I mean, I just happened to be watching Casablanca with a couple of my grandchildren one night, and I just I noticed, my God, Casablanca is the kind of doorway. Nobody wants to stay in Casablanca. They all want to go to Lisbon so they can go to America. So I thought, just I couldn't help but think, what if what if we had a situation where nobody wanted to stay in Buffalo, stay in the United States? Where would they go? They'd go to Buffalo where it's very easy to get into Canada or at least geographically easy. And I know a lot about Buffalo. I grew up there and I am very fond of that city. So uh, I, the story seemed to kind of tell itself. But we do it as a screenplay and we use young actors. We use what they call the bats at the flea, which are young interns who are learning their trade and rather than try to cast it every other week or every week with known actors, I told Jim Simpson, the director, I said, let's – these actors that you use for minor roles and to take tickets and to do – pour the pour the, the, the refreshments and all that, you, let's try using them and let's audition them and see where they can do it and they're terrific. Well, the way that it's set up and how it referred to the basement, the audience is set up in two straight rows right across mm -hmm. and the seven actors are at music stands facing us literally a little bit more than an arm's length away. So you dare not nod off at any point. Exactly. They, exactly. But you know, also those actors, you know, the very actors that are acting in the play, take your tickets. Right? Uh, Clean out the theater before they go and set up the music stands and right. do all the, They run the whole show. Right. I was quite surprised when the guy that handed me my ticket later was starring in the show. Yeah, right. So as they're performing the show, this is for the benefit of those who haven't seen it, uh, there's no scenery. No scenery. No costume to speak of. No lighting effects. No – a couple of little sound effects here and there. Yeah. But basically it's your work being delivered – as pretty much a reading, but in a quite dramatic fashion by these seven young people. Well, I, I absolutely. I, and I hand it to the young actors and the way they can sort of 
put juice into the their parts, but also to Jim Simpson, the director, because staged readings or simply readings is a very common way of presenting a play these days. I, I did it with love letters, and it's been done with the exonerated. It's been done with the vagina monologue. Nobody has to rehearse for too long. Nobody has to learn their lines. But in this case, Jim Simpson rehearsed these young people, made them learn their lines, and he kind of exploded the stage reading form. So when they turn their pages, for example, or, or sometimes they're all speaking together, sometimes two or three are speaking. So he makes it more than a stage reading, though it starts out as well. Well, what you're referring to is some very sharp directing absolutely, by Jim Simpson. Absolutely. And you refer to turning the pages where I'm going to – I'll see if I can make this sound. It kind of sounds like, mm-hmm. like that, mm-hmm. snapping when they turn the pages. It keeps your attention keep, riveted. It keeps you awake. <laughs> I was fascinated when I saw a screenplay because as somebody who's who's seen your work and known you for for 20 years, it struck me, and I hope this doesn't come off wrong, it struck me as the work of a very young man writing that play. And I don't know whether that was a byproduct of the speed with which you wrote it, the presentation, but it seemed fundamentally different than than your your quote-unquote well-made plays like The Perfect Party or Later Life or, or The Cocktail Hour. Right. And were you – was it a byproduct of the speed with which you wrote? Were you trying to do something different? Because even your voice in it feels very different than many you know, of the I, I, I think that's very, with. very astute comment and I noticed it myself. And other people have said that, Howard. I don't mean to take away from your critical acumen but, but other people have said that too. Now, why did that happen? Uh, I don't know. Maybe because in doing it, I mean Casablanca was a major – movie in my college year. We all went to it. We didn't go to it ritualistically the way kids go to it now and recite the lines, but we all took it very seriously because it came out right before the war and and, and then it was revived a lot. So that uh, I remember when I was at Williams College, uh, I had I had to write a – I didn't have to write. I wanted to write a a skit for a review and I made it a takeoff of Casablanca in some way. So maybe when I returned to this at the age of 75, my head sort of slipped back into where my head was when I first saw it or at least when at, at college when we began to talk about it and think about it and go to revivals of it. The other thing that struck me and I think it, it, it it's perhaps because – of a bit of stereotyping of your work, which is unfair, but that the hottest off-off Broadway playwright of the past three summers has been Pete Gurney, political writer. You're not thought of as being the most confrontational of authors, either with an audience or with topics, and you've been very bold, particularly in Screenplay and Mrs. Farnsworth, about talking about what is going on in this country right now, which seemingly is at odds with even your own upbringing, which you've chronicled in earlier plays. What has been both for you the the political awakening that you've finally chosen to, to make this so explicit in your work and how has that been received by by some of the people who've who've known your other work? <laughs> well, it's a long question. It's but, a long question. There you go. Well, I think uh, uh, a lot of a lot of 
I think very unfortunate things have happened politically in this country and I don't mean the obvious unfortunate nature of 9-11 but what's happened in our response to it. I, I don't think we should be in Iraq and I think we're there under, under false pretexts. I think a lot of things have gone wrong in how we have handled our financial situations, our social situation. And so my energy, my anger, which normally is about more conventional perhaps and more uh, more comedies of manners, I guess you could say. My energies just seemed – my indignation seemed to boil up and I tried to find forms in which to express it. Uh, I was lucky in that I found a venue that the Flea Theater happened to be there and was willing to – do it, not to worry about it, not to argue about it, not to say, well, our board of directors is a little nervous about this because none of those plays, whether we're talking about screenplay or Mrs. Farnsworth or Old Jerusalem. Old Jerusalem is done in quite a few colleges now. But Mrs. Farnsworth, which I think is a rather well-made play, hasn't been done very much. Uh, maybe screenplay will be. It's designed to be done by young people. And it certainly appeals to be young people, young people. And I do agree with you. The voice is that of an, at least an old man trying to be young. Um, but uh, the flea is the one. It's never had any problem. We'd love to do it. Let's find a way to do it and let's do it as soon as we can. That doesn't often happen in the theater. As, as you're saying this, I'm thinking of the, the movie many years ago, Network, where the guy leans out the window and yells, I'm not going to take this anymore. Yeah, is I'm mad Pete? as hell and I'm yeah, not going to take this right, Exactly. Yeah. Um, is this Pete Gurney doing the, basically the same thing, saying, hey, I've taken it all these years and suddenly in the last couple of years I'm just pissed off at the world. I'm not going to take it anymore. Well, I don't know whether, it, whether it's – I, I think the world has changed. I don't think I've been sort of boiling inwardly all these years trying to say these things. But I think the political – tapestry of this country has seriously changed in the past six years. And so I've tried to respond to it. You know, and when you get to be my age, I'm 75, when you get to be my age, you you pretty well dealt with those burning personal psychological issues, whether they're trivial or not, they're important to you. You pretty well dealt with all of those by then. But you want to stay in the theater. At least I do. I love the theater. I love working with people. So I was in a sense lucky that I found a, a, a subject, namely the political situation in America today, which aroused enough indignation in me to want to write plays about it. I also uh, – there's a long tradition of this. I'm a big fan of Euripides, for example, and uh, and Aristophanes. And I know Athens, its great playwrights responded to its political situations and its foreign policy with plays. And Euripides would take his version of Casablanca, which would be a, a, a Homeric episode – and he'd, he'd twist it and make it work to tell his audience, look what we're doing today. So what we see in screenplay, Mrs. Farnsworth, some of the other more recent work, how much of that is Pete Gurney, the playwright, and how much Pete Gurney, the citizen? Uh, well, I've been around a long time and I think I know the craft pretty well. I, 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 Howard is a great friend of Alan Akeborn. And I identify very strongly with that. The British playwright. The British playwright. He has written something like 62 or 63 plays, beautifully wrought plays. He loves his craft. 
and I do too. So while the indignation is there and the anger might be there, I I try to make it into a good play because I like shaping things for the theater and I love working with actors. So are you as indignant as your plays make you seem? On that subject, <laughs> yes. Yeah. Though I have to say I, I've got a, a, a couple of plays coming up which are not not political. Maybe they're total backsliding. Well, when you say that, it's 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 interesting that many playwrights would kill to have an artistic home, a theater that does their work. And you look at how the flea has embraced each of these recent plays. But you have the great fortune of having multiple theaters ready to embrace your work. And you have Lincoln Center Theater. Um, which They've been great. Has done certainly Far East and Big Bill. Yeah, my go, first play they did years oh, ago, nineteen seventy-one. So going way back yeah. under a different administration. Yeah, we're starting to see some of your work also here in New York at primary stages. Right, a couple of your one acts uh, they'd done, and uh, Mark Lamus let the cat out of the bag publicly that they're going to be doing something of yours next summer. Right. Um, are, do you think of having different plays for different theaters when you premiere them? Not, and I guess I left out George Street Playhouse, which is also George Street Playhouse, plays very, well. very so much of it. And, and Manhattan Theater Club has done a lot of play, and Playwrights Horizons has done a lot. I mean, you could. Fortunately, you, you write so many that you can, <laughs> they can all claim you. Well, yeah, you could call me a whore, you know. <laughs> but uh, it depends on who's running the show, who's interested. I mean, some plays. Uh, Tim Sanford at Playwrights Horizon doesn't like and Andre Bishop might like or vice versa. So it doesn't mean we don't shop them around occasionally. It's just that I have been lucky and I I, I guess I've never really been excited about writing for Broadway. I've always liked the the off-Broadway audience so I kind of aim for that. I don't ask for huge scenery and huge, complicated set changes or large casts. I like to write small, simple plays to be seen by people who don't have to pay huge amounts of money. And you've really only had two direct experiences with Broadway, um, the um, with Sweet Sue. Sweet Sue. And Golden Age. And the Golden Age. Well, you could argue that Love Letters, uh, Love Letters had a Broadway venue for. for that's true. Yeah. Not not a full conventional run. No, the whole it was time, done but, at the Edison Theater, right. and 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 uh, the Golden Age was done at the Jack Lawrence Theater, which was a kind of fringy theater too. So, but, I, but is part of your feeling about your work in Broadway? Some of it is scale, but is also a byproduct of those experiences. No, I mean in both in all. Th- Three of those cases, uh, it, was, it was perfectly pleasant. Uh, I, I, I didn't. It's just that uh, I feel very guilty when I see too many empty seats, and uh, and I and I and the play never works as well when there are too many empty seats. I, I just feel uncomfortable. I like that's why I love being at the flea, playing for forty people now. I mean, when they say we're sold out, I think it's fine. That's all I care about. I'm lucky enough to have made some money in the theater, so I'm not. And I've educated my children, so I'm not desperate to make a buck as some people are. But uh, so I, I, I don't know. I'd look for the right director, the right venue, and uh, and I've been lucky many times to have found it. 
Well, you mentioned Love Letters, which was done on Broadway in 1989. And now I see there's a current production running in uh, just outside of Washington, D.C., in Alexandria at the... uh, the uh, Lyceum, Love Letters. There's probably a production of it somewhere in the world every moment we speak. Yeah, well, I, 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 that one in Washington I didn't know about. It's a kind of production. It, it, there are lots of pirated productions on uh-huh. this issue because they can, they can do it and get out of town before they have to pay a royalty. What, what, what is Love Letters about? Love Letters is, is, again, very simple. It's two people sitting side by side at a rather large old-fashioned desk reading letters to each other starting with the letters they passed back and forth when they were in second grade. And it ends with um, them having a very mature and sexy relationship and ultimately with her death and him having to write a a sympathy note to her mother. So it, it, it tends through this very simple attempts, I should say, through this very simple forum to chronicle a, a, a generation and a, a way of life that uh, I grew up in that doesn't always uh, exist these days. Well, well since you raised that, let's, let's talk about mm-hmm. the issue of the way of life because I mentioned earlier and I do want to pursue this a little. I, I commented about the, the stereotypical Pete Gurney play mm-hmm. or the perception of, of Pete Gurney and certainly that was formed in those plays which were – chronicling wasp life. Yeah, right, right. The dining room, middle ages, and so on. Is that a fair characterization of you as a playwright, or is it indeed a stereotype that that you don't want people to think about when they think of Pete Kearney? It used to bug me a little, and occasionally there would be digs about it and in reviews where people would say, oh, this is such white bread stuff. And it's, it used to, I used to feel, oh, that's stereotyping me. But I, I do – I have done that and do do that. There's no doubt about it. I was lucky in one sense to have found a subject which was worth talking about. Now, other people have written about that subject. John Cheever certainly has in fiction. And so, in your early years, you did some Cheever adaptations. I, I did. For I did. And I, for television. Absolutely. And I, I really grooved on what he was trying to do. And uh, Philip Barry did it in the theater and to some degree S.N. Behrman did it in the theater. So, But nobody had done it in any serious way in the theater uh, for about – 15 years when I wrote The Dining Room and people looked at it and said, this, is, this, is, this seems new and fresh, wasn't it? It had been done before, though the form was kind of new and fresh. Uh, so I, then people said, oh, he's the chronicler of the Wasp. And I thought, OK, maybe I am. Let me let, – let's try again. What, what else? The, the Wasps, I dealt with the Wasps in their clubs, the Wasps in the summer, the Wasps at dancing school. The wasps and their cocktail moments. Yeah, the uh, uh, cocktail hour. Yeah, I remember seeing that a number of years ago. Kind of a quintessential wasp. Right, show. right. And I made it very clear there's a difference between a cocktail hour and a cocktail party. Because mm-hmm. a cocktail hour is the family sort of gathering together and airing things out. A cocktail party is much more public and social and different. So I've, I've tried to – so I can't complain about that. I've chosen that subject or that subject chose me and uh, I, I think it's a subject worth talking about. And you even went so far as to write a play about being a playwright writing about that world and its effect 
on the playwright's family. That's right. That was the cocktail hour where the father tries to bribe the kid into not putting on the play because he feels, feels it's humiliating and embarrassing. Was that ever a situation you faced? Very Indeed, close to it, Were you confronted yeah. by members of your family at times oh, yeah. about what you wrote about? Oh, very much, yeah. I mean, the, my mother just died two years ago and only now is the cocktail hour being done in Buffalo. It's set in Buffalo. Because you wouldn't allow it to be done she, there? Because she wouldn't allow it. Banned in she, Buffalo. She said, promise me, yeah, <laughs> promise me one thing, you won't have that play done during my lifetime. Well, did, did you get comments from family members like, that's me up on stage or you're portraying that kind of comment? Not, not, not so specifically. It just why, why do you – it was more general. Why do you have to always challenge your roots? And why do you always have to be such a smart ass while you're doing it, if you'll pardon the expression? Well, often the young aspiring playwrights are told, write of what you know, and here you are writing what you know about, I I presume. Well, it it, it took, you know, it took me until I was 40 years old to do it. And, uh, I mean, I wrote many other plays, academic things, and uh, one acts primarily. Um, But I didn't dare touch that. It wasn't that I wanted to and and didn't dare. It's, I just never thought that that was worth writing about or that I was capable of writing about it or or that anybody would care about it. And lots of people don't don't care about it. So then what happened at age 40? That suddenly you said well, it, it, an, an, an epiphany. I'm going to start writing. Well, I was, it, I, was, uh, at, at a, I was up at a workshop up at Tanglewood. I'd written a series of sort of scenes. And it, it, and uh, I was just uh, the reason I'm telling you this is I was just on the telephone uh, yesterday with Rue McClanahan, who I don't know whether your audience would know who sure, Rue McClanahan sure, sure. from Maud and Golden Girls. That's exactly right. And she she was in this play. And she was in these scenes. She she knew the director. She had nothing to, better to do for that summer. And and uh, working with her and with others michael moriarty for example was in i managed to kind of shape this thing and i realized what i was talking it was called scenes from american life and i remember rue mcclanahan and i told her this yesterday she came up to me and she said i need a scene in one and an 11 o'clock number. <laughs> I, oh. I didn't know what she meant. Scene in one means downstage in front of an audience. And an 11 o'clock number means instead of a solo number before your final group number at the end of a play. And so, so she explained that to me. I, I wrote one in about a half an hour and gave it to her. She did it beautifully. And I began to realize, one, the collaborative nature of the theater, but the, also the, the, the necessity of shape in the theater. You have to build and, and reach a climax and sum things up in some way. So anyway, that's where I sort of – that's how I started writing about Wasps uh, in that summer and in Tanglewood with that, those excellent actors. And then from then on in, I thought, well, let me explore the subject a little more. You mentioned that you've written not just about – it took you a while to write about your family, but you've written about academia. And I think it's 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 always fascinated me and I, I want to share with our audience mm-hmm. the fact that you had a day job for a very long time. Can mm-hmm. you talk about your day job and how that even related to then your second career? Yeah. Well, I, I taught in the humanities department at MIT from – I started in 1960. And I officially retired in 1996. 
But MIT gave me a pretty long leash starting around 1984-5. They, they gave me what was called an extended leave of absence. They'd still listen to my courses, and they'd occasionally call on me to speak to alumni or, alumni or to uh, come down and talk to a class or something. But I was pretty much uh, let go in, in the good sense, freed. But I loved teaching at MIT. Uh, the, the students were bright and eager and and recognized their own limitations in that particular area. So the, uh, it was hard work um, because they were all smarter than I was. But uh, uh, every classroom was a kind of a challenge for me. And again, I think doing that, speaking to students – who had been up till three in the morning working on their problem sets or solving some situation in their chemistry lab, keeping them awake, keeping them interested, getting them to talk. Uh, I think it helped me immeasurably when I finally had more time to write more plays. There's a line in one of the songs in The King and I, by your students, you'll be taught. Yeah, right. right. Were your students helpful, not in an overt sense perhaps, but in helping you formulate ideas for shows that you were working on. In other words, the interaction with the students, did that in any way influence your work? As, I, I, as don't think, I don't think specifically uh, no, uh, though they were very supportive of, of what I was trying to do. And when I occasionally I'd have, I'd have a play off-Broadway and I'd count in one case I'd they gave me a big send-off party. <laughs> the reviews were terrible. I had, to, <laughs> I had to come back and face the class. But they gave me a big hand when I walked in. So there was a nice group to come back to. Uh, so, But I don't think – I have written about academia, but not any specific issues that arose from class. I noticed that Wendy Wasserstein's play coming up this fall at Lincoln Center is about plagiarism. And I, I, I never I, – I had a situation where I accused a student of plagiarism, but I never could write a play about it. I never got it right. So I salute her for having been able to do it. They, they talk about Protestant work ethic. What is your work ethic or your work habits? How, how do you work when you're coming up with a show? I'm very bourgeois. I mean I get up. I start – I'm normally at my desk by 8.30, normally – Writing something or other, I, I take about a half an hour for lunch and then I write some more. Though mostly the stuff I write after lunch isn't any good and I have to throw it out the next day. So you basically work for an entire work day? Yeah. Wow. And then when, it, when Saturday and Sunday, I don't even look at the computer, which I use now. Uh, so, uh, But I do. I, 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 it's, like, it's, it's like jogging, which is what I used to do. I you get into the habit and you're not comfortable with yourself unless you do it. Do your wife, your kids, your grandchildren, your friends, your relatives suggest ideas to you? Hey, you ought to do a show about it. A lot of people do. do and people corner you and say, oh, I've got the greatest story for you. But uh, you pretty well come normally I say you write it. You, you know? pretty well come up with it yourself? I do. You, you, you get It's a little kernel of a little itch in your head. What if? This happened or that, and, and out of that, if you let it grow, and and uh, sometimes it becomes a play, sometimes it doesn't. You alluded before to a couple of shows that you have in the in the hopper, so to speak, coming up. Yeah, Can you tell us a little bit about those. Well, one is is, is primary stages, uh, which is totally retro. It's a return to 
Buffalo and a look at my youth in a very different way. Mark Lemos is, is uh, directing it. Set, set back in that era? In the set, set back in the... I'm just, I, I'd say... I'd say... No, it's the war years more. It's forty. It's forty. It's forty-two or three. Uh-huh. The one of the when issues. You were 12, Twelve or thirteen. Yeah, a uh, baby, maybe a little older. Because uh-huh. uh, you, when when you set a play or design a play, think about a play. You got to think of who's going to play. That, that this is the lead, and and I'm not nuts about child actors, so I want that so maybe let's make the guy sixteen, which makes the play set in say forty-six, since I was born in nineteen thirty. But one of the issues is nobody, nobody in the play pay, pays much attention to the war or its aftermath, which is one of the problems. They're just kids having fun. Yeah, uh-huh. yeah. So anyway, that's one and it, about this weird family that I grew up in and um, uh, where I tell all. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, uh, that's one. And then the other one I've just completed. I don't know when it's going to be done. We're having a reading of it. At the flea, but I think the, uh, in in about two weeks, with Sig- Sigourney is interested in it, and Jim Simpson, I want him to direct it if he will, because I think it's perfect for him. But I don't think it belongs in the flea. Maybe it does. I think it needs a slightly bigger audience, and it's not political at all. As we talk about your plays, it's worth noting that you've written several novels, and in also an opera libretto. Yeah. Are there choices? How do you make the choice of, for the most part, you obviously choose plays, but when you want to tell a story as a book as opposed to a play? Well, the, the I have written several novels, and two out of the three novels I, I subsequently turned into plays. And in 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 either case, was it was the result totally successful? Um, Successful I, I, as a play or as a, as a, as novel? a play. Mm-hmm. The, the novels were pretty well received. I wouldn't say they didn't. When climb. we talk about successful, your definition of success, not right. others. Right, right, right. The one was a kind of an academic novel and a, an attack on certain aspects of MIT. And the president of MIT, a deliciously, wonderfully warm-hearted man named Jerome Wiesner was very hurt by it. He felt that I, he was trying to raise some money to keep MIT going. He thought I was, I was being just a smart guy. So I got the same response from him I used to get from my family. And the other, The Snowball, uh, was about dancing school. And the reason that was a novel rather than a, a play is because I, I, think, I thought we needed a big cast. And so I think it, finally we did it as a play with a cast of 16 or 17. So yes, uh, but I I I have to say I'm more at home working in the stage and more at home with smaller, more compressed um, venues for the. You bring up the snowball, and I wanted to ask about that partially in full disclosure because I did the publicity for that. That's right. Production that's of it. right. Yeah. But something that came up at the time, and and I continue to hear about it, is the number of people who believe the snowball, which we'll just quickly say is the story of youths in Buffalo growing up mm-hmm. and seen through dancing dance class, that's and right. then their relationships later right. on as as they've grown up and their reflections right. back on this. You're right. People keep saying this should be a musical. They, and I wanted 
you to share both your response to that and indeed your thought about musicals because if we go back in your bio, you were writing you know, review material when you were back at Williams College. Absolutely. I, I, I inherited the mighty mantle of Stephen Sondheim. You know, he was two years ahead of me at Williams. And he opened up the whole musical comedy form. It was as original and fresh then as he still is. And, and uh, I found myself trying to fill his shoes, which I couldn't do. I, I told you earlier that I wrote a skit. Well, I wrote a series of reviews. For two years I did it. But uh, yes, musicals, that's the way I wanted to go because in the 50s, that's when all the great musicals were coming out. You quoted King and I and, and really they – one after the other on into the 60s with Gypsy, West Side Story. Just I guess West Side Story was still in the 50s. So I, that's where I wanted to make my name. But uh, I don't know. Uh, I, I'd written – I'd written the musical at Yale, and it was the first musical that Yale, and this is the Yale School of Drama, which I first musical that Yale had ever done. It was directed by Nikos Sakharopoulos, and it starred, among others, Dick Cavett and mm-hmm. Carrie Nye. Does you know, wow. Carrie Nye ring a bell? Well, and, his wife. That's right. Who became his wife? Became exactly. His wife. So, and of course, John Cunningham, who uh, has been in many of your plays many of over my the years. plays, he was in it. Lots, lots of people who are still in the theater were in it, and it was very successful. But for some reason, I, we, first place I got married and we started having children, and, and I just sort of turned away from the theater. And then when I came back to it. The musicals didn't interest me. Now, when I wrote the opera, which is four or five years ago, I with Michael Torkey, and we did it first for Glimmerglass, and then we brought it in to uh, the New York City Opera. It was thrilling for me. Uh, and uh, But I didn't try to make everything rhyme. I, I tried to make it unconventional. And Michael Torkey and I just got along so well aesthetically. In every way, we got along. That that was a great pleasure, and I thought, well, gee, I'm missing a boat here. Let's um, let look around and see. I'll talk to my agency whether I could do another musical. And I was involved with a musical until fairly fairly recently. It was a musical based on the life of Grace Kelly. Michael Blakemore was the director. The lyrics were going to be done by Alan and Marilyn Bergman. And Cy Coleman was doing and had already done some of the music. And the and Cy died the night that Michael Blakemore's play Democracy opened on Broadway. And I, I had by then written a rather large scenario and I mean a rather complete scenario. We shopped it around with John Kander to others. Nobody seemed to want to touch it. So, uh, so that I, meanwhile, I wanted to continue to work. I'm not just going to look in the mailbox there. Well, are, are you talking about uh, writing the lyrics or the book? No, the book. The, the book. the book. From your I, I, Which doesn't necessarily have to rhyme. Right. It, <laughs> <laughs> it does not. Though I prided myself at Yale, at the drama school, on on my rhymes. I thought I wrote wonderful rhymes. <laughs> brings up another thought. You, you mentioned a little while ago Alan Akeborn, the British playwright, mm-hmm, who mm-hmm. also directs much of his own work. Right. Have you ever directed or been tempted to direct your own work? I haven't. He's a real man of a theater and he he has his theater up in Scarborough and he, which is theater in the round, he's got it down pat. 
But he's also directed at the National Theater. He directed Arthur Miller's View from the Bridge, a superb production, according to Miller. And we should say, at Scarborough, he has directed plays of yours. Apparently, yes. Since, since we're talking about I, I'm extremely fond of him. And I was absolutely delighted that his play, which opened recently, got such good reviews. It, 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 it really, it, he deserved it, and it's one of his best plays, in my opinion. But uh, uh, he he can do that. I I I'm not good at the kind of backing off and looking at my work objectively. I need a director, and I and I so I have no eager. And I also relish the collaborative uh, event. Uh, sometimes when it doesn't work, when you don't get along with the director, it can it can be nightmarish. But most of the times, I do get along with the director, and it's and and uh, two heads are better than one. I feel. Looking at the uh, the last season on Broadway, but also off and off off Broadway, many uh, fine plays getting produced. Not, not musicals, but mm-hmm. plays. Doubt, of course, won the yeah. Tony this year. Yeah. Um, what is your view of theater currently? What's being written? What's being produced currently? Well, uh, I think. Doubt is an excellent example of the limitations that any playwright is forced to impose upon himself. I mean, it's got a cast of four, I believe. Very simple set. And it's about 80 or 90 minutes long. And so it, within that, those rubrics, I think Doubt's a perfect, a wonderful play in, because the playwright is forced to tell a big story with very limited means. But in general, I, I don't think that Broadway is the place for new or innovative theater, unless it's English theater. Hmm. And for some reason, uh, producers are willing to take a, uh, to invest their money in English plays, and audiences are interested in going to English plays. And we're talking about plays, not Andrew Lloyd Webber musicals. No, right? we're talking about plays. <laughs> right. So, but th- th- as far as the, the future of the Theater in general, it does seem to be turning more and more towards musical. If you look at the musicals, if you look at the Dramatist Guild Journal, which comes out every month, it's nothing but talk about musicals. How about the play itself? Is that still alive and well? I think so. I mean, I think uh, I, I certainly feel that. I think you, I, what I like about it, it's the live human being on stage in front of a live audience. I'm less interested than some of my colleagues in scenery and and in elaborate effects. Uh, but the basic transaction between the live actor and the audience, I think, is always will be there. And on that optimistic note, mm-hmm. A.R. Pete Gurney, thanks so much for being with us today on Downstage Center. <laughs> well, it's a pleasure being here, and good to talk with you both. Thanks, Pete. For the American Theater Wing, I'm Howard Sherman, reminding our listeners that these programs and all of the educational and media work of the American Theater Wing is available for free, on demand, from our website, www.americantheaterwing.org. And for XM Satellite Radio, I'm John Von Susten for Downstage Center. That's a wrap, and thank you.